I do want to also say, oh, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and stop for a second. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. So today we're going to be talking about investigations, which doesn't, it sounds like such a horrible word. And in some ways it really is because it's all about sin and it's all about um, calling out sin and calling people to repentance with the goal, the ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is always reconciliation and shining grace into dark places. That's always the goal of the church. So I want to say first that um, we're really excited that a lot of people are listening. And uh, I mean, we're, we're excited. We're humbled by it because um, <laughs> we want to recognize that these are weighty topics that we're taking on. And we knew that when we started and and that's why it took us so long to get started right elizabeth like we we spent months just talking the two of us about all of these things and about how difficult they were and how much uh grace and nuance needed to be uh, part of these conversations because we didn't want to just say hyperbolic you know inflammatory things um <laughs> And, and we just want to be careful of that. So it took us a long time to get to a place where we were ready really to start tackling these things publicly. And so we're really grateful that people have actually been listening and interacting with us on, on a lot of these topics because we know they're, they're big issues. We know that, I mean, let's face it, this GA, there, there's going to be things that are going to... Uh, be difficult and challenging for us to navigate and I think it's important work I think it's God's work I I really believe that God is at work in his church and in the PCA and I'm looking forward to that myself and I again I encourage everybody to pray like put a note in front of your face somewhere to pray every day for what will happen at GA this year and that God would be glorified through all of it. It may not all end up the way we want, or, I mean, I know <laughs> Go ahead and say it won't end up exactly the way we want. Whoever, whoever you are, you're not going to get everything you want. And you have to do the work of understanding that that's, it's hard, but it's the kingdom of God. And we need to be focused on giving grace to each other. And, and loving each other well, even through our differences, not in spite of them, but even because of them in some ways, because we're, we're growing together and we're all learning together. And we want the PCA to be a beautiful reflection of Jesus and his bride. And so to that end, um, we wanted to talk today a little bit about, or a lot about, just clarifying some of the things that are in the BCO with regard to church discipline and process and investigations that come out in our churches and in our presbyteries. We'll kind of outline what happens when and who and all that. Um, and we want to there's 11 uh, no no there's actually 13 overtures right now regarding investigations or having something to do with investigations and we want to recognize that that two press trades in particular have just been they've been busy uh philadelphia metro west has come out with a number of them 
really helpful clarifications that are needed. And then Pacific Northwest has also just been at work um, laying out also many of the clarifications and just in some ways simplifying and in some ways just adding on to these practices um, should go forward. So I think what I'll do first is just kind of say um, what we're talking about is in a church, um, we're talking about members of a church in good standing who are, um, you know, something hasn't has happened uh, that an allegation has been made. So you have an someone comes forward and says this happened, and at that point, so so there's a few different questions that we have to answer, like. Do first of all, do members even know who to go to, right? And that's something that we need to kind of consider when something happens that uh, someone sins against us. Do we know what to do? And we'll get back to that. Secondly, um, when that happens, it, it's also important to establish whether or not someone involved is on the session. And so, because different things need to happen when, when a person is on the session, you know, if I have some kind of ongoing altercation with uh, an elder, certain things have to happen. And then if it's a teaching elder or pastor, other things have to happen. <laughs> and that, that probably totally confused a lot of people, but uh, so there's, there's, there's different questions that we have to answer right away. Once that all happens, like once we figure out, okay, if, if I'm bringing an allegation against a member of the session, that needs to be investigated by the session. If I'm bringing a, an allegation against a pastor, then it gets a little trickier. And so uh, we'll get into that in a minute. To start out, These are, you're yeah. specifically talking about, I mean, I guess we can address if it's just a member and a member, two members of a church issue where there's an ongoing conflict, who did they bring that to? But I think most people probably recognize that if you're having an interaction or a conflict with a member of your church and there needs to be some outside involvement or someone else needs to step in at some point, you would go to your session, your pastor, so I guess really we're talking about what happens when the conflict or, or, you know, in larger cases, the abuse is occurring, accusation is coming out and it's, it involves a session member or a, or a pastor or a staff member of the church. Right. Then what, where do you go? How do you handle that? That's what you're, that's what you're addressing just yes. to clarify. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. So the question, it, really the first question is who's involved. Right. right. Okay. And, and the, because there's a, a few different things happening, like uh, the BCO is, you know, there's a lot of people that would agree that the BCO is not quite clear on the method, you know, where, where is it talking about member to member conflict? And then when, when is it talking about elder to member and do, do all the same principles apply? Generally speaking, they all still apply but it get it does get muddied when there's a, a pastor involved uh, you know you can make the case I think or I know <laughs> biblically that 
pastors need to have those people in their lives that are constantly asking them these questions like you know even even just kind of the reverse question like is there anyone you can think of that would have something against you and we all can think of that question like is there someone in my life right now that could come to me and and say hey you've sinned against me and we should be able to answer that like honestly um and and if you're doing that work personally then i think a lot of these things go away right like so uh, you know a good number of of those conflicts and tensions kind of go away because ideally you know we're all doing the work of matthew 18 step one and done step one and done <laughs> like we're going to each other we're confessing to each other we're repenting and we're done depending on what it is because then you get into some more complicated issues for example one of the overtures i want to make sure we get to today is overture 40 from tennessee valley um and allowing some victim protection provisions because then you start getting into questions of domestic abuse and sexual assault where we have a whole nother range of things to consider in terms of how we treat these things in the church and allegations of actual physical harm or sexual harm definitely take on a new dimension to I mean spiritual abuse is absolutely of course it's it's harmful and needs to be dealt with and we're not we're not trying to sin level in that um you know everything's the same we treat it all the same but um we do need to separate out what happens to victims of sexual abuse in our churches and and any kind of physical abuse it's really good i think the two the two that they're focused on for the book of church order are 3213 which states in order that a trial may be fair and impartial the witnesses shall be examined in the presence of the accused or at least after he shall have received due citation to attend this isn't a trial, I'm assuming. Yeah, this so is this is about. all trial, not, okay. not in the investigation. Not process. in the investigation. So this is after okay. they've already gathered enough information. Yeah. And now it goes to trial. And now they're saying these things. So this yeah. this overture is saying specifically in domestic abuse and sexual assault. Yeah. Um, we need to reword some of these things and their suggestions are 3213 adding quite a bit like basically adding that throughout the trial in cases involving alleged child abuse domestic abuse sexual abuse or sexual assault a court may make reasonable accommodations to shield accusers from face-to-face -face contact with the accused and then they go on to, you know, accommodations could be written testimony, video conferencing, which we now have access to, which they wouldn't have had before. That's really, really good. <laughs> really, really good. And here's why, I mean, and they bring this out, like, 
you're talking about someone who has been raped by a church staff member, emotionally or physically abused by a church staff member or an elder, a young child who's been sexually abused. These are all people that it would do undue harm to them for them to be questioned in front of their accuser or by their accuser in a, in a trial. So I think these are really, really good things um, that, that need to be added. I think another piece to this, which I don't know, oftentimes, and we, you know, I have personal, I know of examples where this has happened in the church where um, a girl was, was sexually abused by the youth pastor in the church and that was harmful to her, but the way it was handled by the other pastors and the session was far more harmful to her. And she will say that now as an adult, being treated as if this was um, an adultery case, not reporting to the authorities. Uh, this never went to a trial. This, this situation that I'm thinking of, it never even went to the presbytery. The church handled it in-house. They just fired the guy and he moved on to an, I mean, this is just, it's, and this is a PCA church. So when I'm in those cases, I'm thinking, Robin, this is good, but there almost needs to be some acknowledgement that those staff members and elders possibly should not be involved in, in the examining or questioning of, of a, of, of a witness as well, because even though they're not the ones who perpetrated originally, they have not handled it well. Do you know what I'm saying? And now they would also cause ir possibly irreparable, I don't know, but unnecessary harm if they were involved in the questioning. Does, do you know if it talks about anything about that? Yeah, absolutely. All of that is part of one of the uh, overtures goes into that a little bit. Overture 28 kind of goes through the, the sequence of discipline investigation prior to okay. the trial okay. um, and who should be involved. Like, uh, you know, one of the questions, who gets to, I mean, for one thing, if it's someone on the session, do they get to vote in their own trial or in their own investigation? Seem, it seems like a fair question. Right. To understand who gets to you know, we're basing it, like, let's back up a second. We're, we're basing a lot of this on, you know, our court systems. Uh, I mean, this is the court of the church and it's, uh, you know, we have in the American judicial system, we have, you know, the accused has the right to face his accuser and has the right to make a defense or to appoint someone to make an, a, defense, uh, a defense for him or her. And so we have this understanding that, um, you know, in these cases that the one who is accused should be given the benefit of, you know, innocent until proven guilty. This is what we've decided on as a nation, right? When we come to the church and the church courts, we need to do better than that. We need to go a step beyond that in terms of how we handle what seems like two different approaches, like we're not saying guilty until proven innocent. Right. However, we're also not saying that 
victims are guilty until proven innocent because we need to hold that intention like if a victim comes forward and says this happened to me and our response tends to be no it didn't (laughs) which is what it boils down to you know we're holding one person you know it's a he said she said moment and and it's we're tending to hold one person more innocent than another and that is not the way of christ and so um you know we need to do that work of figuring out how do we hold both of those carefully clearly there's room for allegations and in the bco there's even room for you know we don't we're not going to we're not going to investigate charges that come from someone of questionable character which needs to be fleshed out a little more too. Like, what does that mean? And how do we get at, you know, if it's a member who's just always had like some kind of, you know, vendetta against someone and there's a pattern, again, patterns are what we're paying attention to. Um, If there's a pattern of a person being contentious and just wants and, and is trying to get at somebody, we need discernment for that. We need to discern that that's what's happening. But we know, we know from many decades of research and, and we all have anecdotal evidence of victims that come forward, not because of some vendetta, but because it's true. Right. And so, you know, just and it's because- costly. I think we need to recognize that Absolutely. for victims to come forward is very costly. And that's also well-documented. Yes. And, and so that's, I mean, in, and, and the, you're right, that, that's what I'm getting at in our churches. We have to do better than our judicial systems. We have to do better in investigating these things because we know that cost and we know that when we get it wrong, how much more harm and how much more trauma we are inflicting on victims and that uh, as a church, we're in the business of healing people not harming them or adding on to the burden yeah so um you know getting these things wrong or or uh dismissing you know our need to to have a fuller more comprehensive understanding of what's happening uh to me is is first of all arrogant i mean you know the people that kind of say well I'm going to go off on a tangent there, but, you know, there's, there's plenty of people who, you know, don't understand the need to be trauma informed in these practices and will kind of dismiss the idea that, that we need to handle these carefully. Like, like, I mean, uh, these investigations are fragile and, and we need to have that uh, understanding as we go forward. So, you know, these overtures are trying to get at that. So go, going back to um, Overture 40, you know, these these pieces of the BCO that talk about trials and, um, you know, once, so so here's the, here's the process. Like once you go through um, an allegation, like someone comes forward, this happened, then the, the elders, it's upon the elders to decide if there is, evidence if there's sufficient grounds for charges to be brought um then they assign someone it could be one of the elders usually is one of the elders 
or it could even be someone just anybody any member of the church can bring up charges they can write up charges um to be brought to a court and then the session goes to trial so all the things that happen before charges are brought is is called an investigation which is you know i mean that's how we see you know our judicial system when somebody's arrested for example then there's this sense of you know we have to get a case prepared um or i'm sorry even before they're arrested like you have to have a case to arrest them and then once they're arrested you build a case in in the trial and so it's similar to that in a church there's there's another kind of thing that happens and this is really what we we want to happen <laughs> like you know the whole matthew 18 process we want someone to go to someone privately and say you sinned against me and to have that person say you're right I did I sinned against you I I'm I understand my my need to confess and repent to make it right um, whatever restitution needs to be made and at that point you either it may mean that you get another third party involved it may mean that 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 person goes to the church and says I've wronged this person and then they do something that's called without process where they don't have to go through an investigation and a trial and all that. And, and there may be some other consequences. I mean, maybe, you know, someone confesses that, um, you know, I had an affair. And so then the session says, okay, um, we think that you should get counseling. We think that you should withhold from the, the table for a month or six months or whatever while you're in counseling so that can happen also that and ideally that's what is happening in our churches is that we're we're not even getting to a trial um that we're we're doing the matthew 18 process and getting people to repent much earlier i mean we all believe in the power of the holy spirit and we want <laughs> we want people to be convicted you know the, the holy spirit's job is to convict us of sin and to comfort us and so <laughs> i mean you know i laugh but it's you know if we really believe that the holy spirit is living in us that's what's going to happen yeah that that's the bigger picture right because we are sinful and full of deceit and we are blind to our own you know the, the planks are in our eyes and we don't we don't want to admit to it we don't we don't see it and we and when we're told it's there we refuse to accept it yeah and, and this this is where we end up down the road into these allegations and investigations and so a lot of churches will get to this point of allegations i mean it, so the the bigger statistic that i would be interested in getting which i haven't gotten and i'm not sure how to get it like apart from going through every session's uh, minutes <laughs> which sounds horrible unless I sat down with every session's minutes uh, I really would be curious to know how many allegations turn into trials you know what we what we'd want to see is an investigation begins and there's repentance right like that's that's what we'd want to see and my guess you know my gut feeling is that that hopefully happens a lot more what doesn't happen I think on any regular basis, and I've been told this by a number of, of people, 
is this kind of sense like a session goes through a particularly difficult investigation and they all just kind of complain about how hard it was and yeah. um you know they they can if you ask them they, they could tell you all the mistakes that were made uh, well not all of them they can tell you some of the mistakes they made but there's this general sense of well there's nothing we can do about it now right and that's what I, I want to do some more work around is, is trying to figure out how we get some of these sessions to first admit that they, they're in over their heads, that they're not getting the help they need. I mean, it'd be a little bit like if, if my best friend was arrested for murdering someone and then called me and asked me to, to defend her <laughs> you know right her trial you know no no thank you <laughs> right I mean that's not going to happen and so and in a lot of ways what happens in our church sessions is that these guys are called you know that that's what they're called to do is to to be able to sit on some of these cases that they just don't understand yeah and, and I think there's a fear. I don't know why. I'm still trying to flesh this out, but there is definitely a fear of bringing in outside help. I think some of that comes from we want to contain the story or we want to contain the, um, we don't want to damage the image of the church. We don't want to, we don't want this getting out into the community. We don't want to uncover even more problems to deal with because it's hard enough to deal with the one that's obvious to us. Um, but I know from personal experience in a situation with us where it was like my husband was practically begging for third party mediation multiple times over and over. We want to work this out, but we need outside help. We cannot handle this ourselves. And every time it was refused by a person we needed mediation with and by the session and the reason we were given by the session was because they could see that third-party mediation wasn't going to go anywhere because the other person, the other party didn't want to have it. But I don't know. I'm just, I'm really frustrated with this. We, we have to bring in, we have to admit when we're over our head and recognize that there are lots of resources out there for us. But, but yeah, the whole like protecting containing I get it to some extent but at the same time I don't I don't know if that that doesn't make it that was so helpful, <laughs> that was so helpful. <laughs> well it is I, get it, but I don't it's it's complicated and yeah. nobody is trying to say that it's it's straightforward I don't think um there are certainly cases like to me there's a line when we're talking about physical and sexual abuse like that's that's a pretty hard and fast line I think I'm comfortable with is the saying when there's an allegation of sexual abuse or or physical like domestic violence type of thing um there's no session that's really that should really be handling that especially and I have to add this because I know of cases especially when it's one of the elders yeah I mean you know to have to have all of that brought in front of a session about one of their own elders is not okay um and i'm saying that as a pastor's wife i mean if we think through the implications of all that and the damage that that does 
to and and I'm showing my bias here because I'm saying you know it's usually the the man abusing the wife. It could certainly be the other way, but anyway, right. um, you know the the idea that that a wife of an elder needs to go to her session on which her husband is like yes that doesn't that can't be the way that we go about it and so um you know setting up some kind of third party investigation to handle it outside of the session appoint someone on the session who can be kind of a a liaison or or whatever you want to call it um but I I can't get to and you know I really appreciate the work that you know organizations like Grace um, mm-hmm. and, and people like that have been doing and trying to get, make us more aware of that that dynamic of like you can't ask an elder's wife to go to the other elders to say my husband is abusing me that's yeah. that is not how this is going to work you know or or if she ends up going to the to law enforcement and then it becomes this notorious thing there's very few sessions that are able to deal with that well even with all the training like that's just it gets too personal um it gets too private for for the spouse I mean it's just it's too complicated and the way that churches I mean I know I, I know of a case um you know right now that that just it was I mean I've heard about it and just thought this is horrible this is asking and the wife is has been nothing but gracious and and it's heartbreaking because she is so humble like she takes it all on herself like that it was her fault which is just I want (laughs) like I that makes me scream like oh no 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 um and so anyway, all, all of that to say, you know, it does get very, very complex and it gets very, um, it's challenging. And so we do need to flesh out things a little more. And now saying that, my my husband pointed out to me recently and we had a good spirited conversation about it. Like, is it better for us to say, let's make the BCO really general so that there's more room? Or is it better for us to keep drilling down, right? And and making more, you know, more process, more, uh, you know, guidelines, more, you know, this sequence of discipline that everybody- well, I think that to- depends, right? Yeah, right. Depends on your personality. And it also depends on how you're going to read the book of church order. Like right. Right. you interpret it as I can only do what's in here. Well, then we need it to be narrowed down. But- right if you view it as a guideline then yeah and yeah and that that's an interesting that's an interesting point because we do kind of have to get at one of the many reasons why sessions don't know what to do is because they don't go to the bco right like they don't even know what's in the bco to say that they're not going to do it (laughs) because they don't even know what's in there well you know robin the other thing I was thinking real quick, it, it kind of goes backpacks a little bit, but I just want to reiterate, we talked about this last time too. And you mentioned, I want, I want to have compassion for our elders. I want to acknowledge that these cases are not easy situations to be in. They are time consuming. They're emotionally exhausting. They're painful. I mean, it's, yeah. it's yeah. so hard to walk yeah. through these, these situations 
And then you have you have churches where their session just dealt with something like this. So then the next thing comes down the pike that's super serious to deal with, and they don't want to deal with it. They want to okay. just they don't want to because they know how much time it's going to take. And then that person gets the short end of the stick, basically because this is a session that doesn't want to handle it. But again, you made the comment. You know, I'm sorry, but this is on them. This they're not prepared for. They 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 can't. This is on them. We need elders, and this is a whole other podcast. I know this, but we we need to pray for our elders more. We need our elders. We need elders who are up to the task. We don't just need a warm body in that position. We need someone with a heart that loves Jesus and a desire to serve Him well in the church by doing these very things. And we need them better equipped and better trained to know what it is that they're coming into. Um, but that's a whole other thing and, and that's tangent. So, sorry. <laughs> Don't be sorry. I just wanted to say it again. Yes. No, every every single word that you said is, is true. And you know my heart in that too. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, I was talking to someone recently about about the PCA and about um, the kind of this ongoing war civil war if you if you might call it about elders and this kind of idea of the two office versus three office thing and you know I don't want to that's definitely another podcast and I don't I don't know if I ever want to talk about it really but um (laughs) you know the whole dividing line between teaching elder and ruling elder is is uh you know a lot of it is based on really a, a handful of verses in scripture which is fine i'm not saying like i'm absolutely i believe there's a distinction like i'm just gonna lay that right. out there i mean there is certainly something um different about what our teaching elders are called to do and as such they're they are given double honor and uh, because of that you know, what we ask of our teaching elders, they become the experts. Like they're the, they're the ones who've gone through law school and passed the bar exam. And now right. you're hiring them to be your lawyer and you're hiring them to, to know certain things and to understand their craft. And so, uh, you know, this idea that, you know, well, all these ruling elders, who are good, wise, godly men, according to scripture, you know, all the qualifications that apply to them, we are, we're not saying necessarily that every church, I mean, we don't know, right, I don't know every ruling elder in the PCA, (laughs) thankfully, Um, you know, the, the, the ones I know, like, they are good, godly men who just love Jesus, want to do, they want to serve their church, all the things, right, we're not saying that they are not godly men, but one of my my big uh, one of the big things that I've been thinking about a lot for the past you know eight years is it's okay to say I am not called to be a ruling elder, mm-hmm. and to say that being a mature, godly, wise man doesn't necessarily mean that you're called to be a shepherd like it just doesn't and we have this kind of hierarchical thinking in our heads like um you know that's that yeah that's totally getting off on another rabbit hole but you know what it means for for what we're saying today in in terms of these discipline cases 
there are men who are who are who are looking at these discipline cases in ways that that reveal their hearts that reveal what they're really concerned about with and it's not always the people involved in the investigation that's not their first very first concern they are not taking care of the people who are harmed and that to me is a sign of not being a shepherd you do not have a shepherd's heart if you are not if your heart is not broken for the people who have been harmed i mean whether or not it's you know again we're you know the whole like oh well there's false accusations i mean sure there is somewhere but by the time that these things come to light there's so many other things that go on like you know this this person who has come forward like you said before takes a great amount of courage to put yourself out there and to say this happened to me men these men don't understand that that's like the first piece that they don't understand right and then the second piece they don't understand is how much trauma they're causing by questioning whether this person is lying or not right and it's not saying you don't ask the questions but you ask them in a way that recognizes the the sacrifice that that victim is making to even come forward because you for every i mean the statistics are clear for every time someone comes forward with an allegation there's you know 10 more allegations that have never come to light i mean it happens in a lot of these public cases where someone comes forward and says you know this famous pastor abused me and within a month we get you know 10 more people saying he abused me too and so you know that that's a whole other conversation but um you know, just backing up the the idea that these elders kind of come at it like, well, we need to protect, but not even protect, we need to defend our pastor, we need to defend our fellow elder, we need to defend our good church's name, we don't want it to get out into the community, we don't want people to be upset and leave the church, all, all the reasons that kind of come to the forefront of their mind instead of what are we doing for this victim? How are we shepherding this victim through all the pain? And and how are we shepherding the one who's being accused? Right? Yeah. Like we're not, we're not just defending him and saying, oh, he can do no wrong, or we're not gonna try everything in our power to to get him acquitted. What we're gonna do is be like, dude, we need to talk. Let's talk about what's going on in your heart and mind. Let's talk about it. Is there any truth to these allegations? Let's talk about, you know, what, what do you think needs to happen here? And, and, you know, that kind of stuff just isn't, that's not what's happening in our churches. And we've just seen that through a number of investigations that you and I personally know of, you know, just this doubling down of, we have to protect our church and our good name at all costs. And by doing that, they end up dragging everybody down and and their name ends up getting out to the public in ways that it never should have but we covered that last time (laughs) yeah but i think the important ones to look through are which was 28 and 29 they go into great detail on the steps of investigation and how sessions should exercise their authority and and what it looks like to have due diligence you know, one of the things that's kind of holding up 
some of my opinions, I think, is that we haven't gotten the report on, on abuse yet, the committee, the study committee. Yeah. So, well, Overture 40 references that report. Yeah. And I wondered about that because that's their first whereas. Yes. And so there was some uh, questions about that, like how can they reference a report that hasn't come out yet? But from what I understand, what's been written in Overture 40 has has been um, discussed or or approved. I don't like to use the word approved, but um, you know the people that are on the study committee have seen Overture 40, and they they've agreed that this is a good way forward. And and a Which lot of it isn't surprising to me in any way. I yeah. think Overture 40 is so necessary. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, whenever whenever a session, I mean, I'm sorry, a presbytery comes out with a bunch of overtures, I always wonder, wow, did something happen that we don't know about? Yeah. Because, uh, you know, these two, particularly, these two presbyterians have written a lot on, on uh, investigations and discipline, so it does make one wonder. So uh, just getting back to kind of the big picture of of all of this, I think the PCA does everything decently in order, right? That's our thing. We certainly don't have the monopoly on it, but we'd like to think we do. <laughs> um, and and that's good. It's a good thing. It's one of the one of the many things that really appealed to me about being part of the PCA from the beginning was that it, this is all laid out. We're not making stuff up as we go. Yeah. theory right um and we're thinking through we're taking all these things really seriously and thinking through the implications of how we conduct these types of investigations and so for me the big picture is do our people know what to do do they do they know what kind of recourse they have within the church you know, like we started saying at the beginning, people don't know where to go if they have a problem, if they have some kind of significant case that they've tried. We know, we, we always hammer in Matthew 18 as your kind of baseline. This is what you do first. If someone sins against you, you go to them, right. ask them to confess and you forgive them and then you move on. But in cases of of things like spiritual abuse where, you know, how many times do you do step one of Matthew 18 or, or even step two of bringing someone with you? Like there's no number of times that you have to do it, right? At some point, when does it become the burden of the church and particularly the session? to resolve this, you know, I think we need to get more members of our churches and more, cer certainly more elders, just informed, informed about the process that we have and we have it in place for a reason. You know, getting that information to our members when they're signing up, you know, I think about my membership class, I've had three now, and I think about the kinds of things that we cover in our membership classes. And I would hope that every church would cover some kind of 
generic conflict resolution type of deal, but then also be specific about what we do in the PCA. Right. And so, you know, sometimes it, it kind of airs on one side over another. Like we kind of do this, you know, yeah, there's going to be conflicts, do Matthew 18. And, and it's kind of this vague, like, well, you know, did you go to that person? Did, did you go back to that person with somebody else? And then at what point do you tell the church, right? Yeah. Yeah. And since you brought up Matthew 18, I just want to say, um, I will, I'll be the first to admit there are some passages of scripture that I bristle to. And part of them are part of the main reason is because I, I feel like they have been used and this is probably for a different podcast, but this is about spiritual abuse most likely. And just the way in which they, they were used as weapons or as verses to, to put me in my place instead of in as passages of scripture meant to uplift and encourage the body of Christ. Matthew 18 is one of those. And Tim has, has said to me multiple times, I think there's a, there is, he thinks there's a misuse of Matthew 18 often because it's not looked at in context. And Matthew 18 is not talking about people who are in different positions of power, talking about brother to brother, not talking about abused to abuser. So I think that needs to be said when you're talking about pastors who are abusing positions of power over and, and I mean, maybe maybe you have different thoughts on this, so we should talk about them, but I'm thinking specifically when you're talking about pastors in cases of abuse of power, abuse, you know, sexual, physical, domestic abuse, these kinds of situations, you're not talking about people who are at even playing levels. Uh, we're not talking about people, you know, like we're not talking about pastor to pastor or, or even just member to member. You're talking about people who have a different level of authority and therefore power at their hands so to Matthew 18 this and use it as a verb would be to say to this church member you have to go one-on-one first to this person who has much more who power over you and tell them that they have by yourself you have to do this first I think is a misinterpretation misuse of of the process of that I, I absolutely agree. And you and I have talked about that many times before in that um, sometimes these cases do get treated as like conflict resolution, uh, peacemaking, right? We need to abide by peacemaking principles. And if you've ever gone through a peacemakers class or read the books or did whatever, um, you know, it always starts with Matthew 18. It always starts with getting the planks out of your eyes. Um, and that's all well and good, like you're saying, peer to peer. When you get when you get into cases of power where one is a clear, has clear authority over someone else, you do have a different situation. And you're right in pointing that out because it does make a difference as to how, how the entire investigation and trial process should go. 
Mm. And I think that's a piece that's missing. It's huge, huge gaping hole in our understanding of, of trials and, and um, you know, it gets to what we we're talking about as, as far as like the impact of all of it on the victims and not being trauma informed. You know, right. a lot of these churches make the mistake of, of kind of leveling out, you know, this kind of sin leveling of what the abuser has done as opposed to what the person abused has done and just kind of making them equal. Yeah. And they're not, they're not equal in any way. And so, um, yeah, I mean, there's certainly more, I mean, that's a, a whole another set of overtures, right? Like, right. I mean, we have a separate section for special rules pertaining to elders, you know, c- cases of uh, process uh, 34, special rules pertaining to process against a minister or a teaching elder, which is certainly uh, could be fleshed out. There's There's a lot of things in there that don't really leave room for power struggle that happens uh, like you know like I said at the beginning like we have to ask the questions of who who's involved and what level of responsibility do they have um, if it's a lay person a lay person is you know there's a certain set of rules but if it's someone who has authority over someone else it's a whole nother set of rules yeah um, and I think it's it's a crucial piece um, to this yeah. discussion and in remembering those things too. Um, And also when you mentioned, I I don't think people recognize that the process is so important. It is important. And it's one of the things brought me to the PCA too is that there is a process and everything is in fact in order, but there is some trauma, a lot of trauma involved. We were talking about cases that have been going on for two and a half years and, you know, it started all over again because they didn't do the process. And now you're talking about, look, I mean, think about just, just thinking about the most vulnerable in those situations, the ones who have, have put up with the most, you know, the ones who are dealing with the most pain and all of that, you're asking them to do the whole thing over again. It's just like re-traumatizing all over again, live through it all over again. So we can go through the right process. And I I think we have to recognize what a weight that is for people. Um, That's really heavy and it's painful. It is. And yeah, I mean, I, and I hope that they realize that, I mean, you know, I really, I probably am a little more hopeful than I was a month ago in that, you know, so much more has come to light about how to deal with these things. And there are elders in, in certain presbyteries that have realized how just woefully ignorant they are about trauma and uh, and about the the cost um like you were saying for victims you know I think of my own life and my own times when I could have made a bigger deal about something that happened and didn't Mm. you know I calculated those costs and I realized you know for for one thing and this is incriminating to them (laughs) is that I didn't trust them like you were saying before I didn't trust that the, you know, if this is the way the session dealt with me, how could I have any trust in the presbytery to see it any differently? These are all right. the same guys. 
us, right? These right. are all the same people that are making the same decisions and coming to cases with the same bias and with the same ignorance. And so, you know, the work that has to be done for, for our presbyteries is that they own that and they own that they, they need to, to be more informed and they need to take honest stock of where they're at in terms of handling some of these cases. Uh, yeah, I also think it's telling, I, I mean, I'll just say it on record that I was advised not to take the case, not to press charges and not to take it to the presbytery because I was told it would be extremely difficult and very long and painful yeah. and most likely would not come with an outcome of any kind of resolution for yeah. our situation because it was not I mean, in my mind, it was, it was clearly, <laughs> it was this, this person shouldn't be a pastor and to not bring that forward and, and have, you know, for him to go on to a different church and, and, and pastor in a different presbytery was so painful for me to think through, because I know how painful it was dealing with situations I dealt with, with him, but that says a lot about your presbyteries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It says a lot about your sessions. If you are if you're advising not to bring these cases forward because it would it it won't have the outcome that you're hoping for and it's just going to be that much more painful for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and what, what that says, and I'm going to be blunt here, what that says is we are less concerned about shepherding you than we are about dealing with this pastor. And that, that's really what it's saying. It's saying we are not doing our jobs in shepherding and protecting and, you know, but, and, and <laughs> this is all sounding like we're just complaining and we're not. Like, I, I want it to be clear that we, we, we really just want um, elders to recognize the way and they know the way of their calling we're, we're asking them to recognize that to remember their vows to remember that these are real people we're dealing with like sometimes what happens i think is is we kind of there's a lot of shepherds that just want to deal with you know the sheep who aren't in trouble right like that's what they want they just want everybody to be happy and and you know roast marshmallows on the campfire and sing but meanwhile there's some sheep that are lost and and are hurting and are wounded and it's like well just you know clean yourself up and come back over here and hang out with us and and so yeah it's just this like washing their hands of their responsibility because it's too hard and it's too uncomfortable for them um one thing i i do also want to kind of get at most presbyteries have and I this is my ignorance I don't know if they have to like if it's kind of a mandate or not but most presbyteries have a committee that's specifically shepherd the shepherds like it's some of them are actually called shepherding committees I know my husband was on uh like they have all these we love committees uh he was on the the credentials committee at one point and um this is when we were in Virginia. You know, he also had a shepherding committee that was involved because there, there were some issues on the session that he was at. 
And so he called out some guys on the shepherding committee, like, hey, what do we do with this? To be honest, you know, it isn't until something gets really bad that that people say, oh, maybe we need to look at this and pay attention. And sometimes when it gets really bad, they're like, oh, we don't want to deal with that at all. <laughs> and they run the other way. You know, we had just came out of the last presbytery we were in where there were there were significant issues with a couple of churches. And to this day, I don't think the presbytery has done anything. And I'm not trying to condemn anyone. I mean, maybe a little. <laughs> but uh but but it was it was like we begged them to get involved and the presbytery just kind of was sort of asking some questions here and there but really didn't take responsibility and these churches were really struggling and it, it was bad it's really bad and it's really I mean let's say what it is it's a bad witness to the to the world I mean when you let these churches really flounder and make really bad decisions and it affects the way they're viewed in the community. Um, And so, you know, the shepherding committee not getting involved in that is, is, uh, I mean, in some ways it's uh, totally understandable. It's hard work. It is hard work. They have, you know, pastors have their, all their own, issues to deal with in their own church and their local church and then to ask them to take on the problems of every other local church in their press tray that's a lot it's a lot to ask of people and I get that I mean I watched my husband get involved in other churches and how difficult that was and so it, I you know I realize I'm, I'm asking for a lot but then also if you say on paper this is what we do this is what we're about this yeah. is a committee we have that's dedicated to the health of our pastors, but then you don't even know what's going on in your pastor's lives. Yeah. I mean, I I don't get that. I don't I don't get how that happens. And then, you know, when you know things are going on in a pastor's life and you don't make the effort to reach out. And you know, I've said it before, and I'll say it again on record. And if anybody from our presbytery is listening, I want you to think about it and pray about it because nobody from our presbytery has asked us what happened in any official way mm. and no nobody has from to my knowledge to this day no one in any kind of official mm. capacity from our presbytery has reached out to us since we were fired i'm really sorry about that Robin. Yeah. i really am it it that should not be yeah should not be and, you know, I, because I am who I am, like I, I've written stuff that um, they could certainly piece together what happened, but I don't know if anyone has even tried, like, I don't know if anyone from the press cherry, I mean, we were, we were church planners, we are part of a church planning network. My husband has met with the church planning network several times. Now, let me, let me put a caveat because I want to make sure that this is heard correctly there have been a few pastors and honestly I think they were all other church planters because those are the people that that got to us right um they reached out to either me or to Rob I think but no one in any kind of official like not not the people who um 
mean, I don't think anyone from the shepherding committee has contacted my husband. Mm. I don't think that, you know, I don't want to name names or anything, but people who I think should be concerned about what happened and who've never heard our side really, other than what I've written publicly, you know, they, they haven't reached out to find out. And that to me is a, a flag, if not a red one, it's at least a yellow flag, right? Like it's, it's, uh, it's concerning. And so the question is like, how do we, how do we figure out whether or not we are handling conflict well, whether or not we are moving forward with procedures in a way that is reflecting God's heart for us? And then how do we hold, how do we hold these courts of the church accountable for what happens um, to the people who, who are the most wounded by it all? Yeah. Because let's face it, churches will come and go, um, people will come and go, pastors come and go. There's groups of people that stay the same and are will just always kind of be there and we'll just always move along and they're relatively unaffected by it. Recently I you know I posted uh, that you know a lot of times the things that are so incredibly painful to us. It's just a blip on someone else's radar. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, it doesn't, things that have changed my life forever doesn't really affect someone else at all. Yeah. And if we're going to be a church that reflects the heart of Christ, we, we do mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. And we do take on more than we, yeah, I say we clean up messes that we didn't make. Mm. And we get involved for the sake of other people more so than we would get involved for ourselves. Right. And that, that's the heart that we have to have in all of these, these investigations and in, in understanding how to move forward. What else is there to say? <laughs> well, there's so much to say and so little to say, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's costly. I mean, all of this is, and I think, but we know why we, we do it is because it's what Christ has done for us. We love because he loved us first and we protect the vulnerable because he gave his life for us. That's a constant. I can continually have to keep that in front of me. Why am I doing this? Because if I'm trying to do any of these things in my own power or for my own glory, and inevitably it's too painful why would i do this <laughs> if yeah. that was the only reason why it's too painful i just would walk away but we press on and keep on because we're not doing it for those reasons we're doing it for him absolutely just to kind of wrap up a little i think the takeaways are that we get informed all of us I mean, that may take on a few different things. Um, you know, to be honest, if I was if I was uh, at a church right now, I think I would be trying to ra rally the troops, right? Like, get people together. Like, let's 
think about how what all of this means for our local church, how we're gonna move forward from here on out. And it would take a few different forms like informing members on the BCO in ways that are relevant and understanding that there is there is something that we can do about cases and there there are procedures that we can follow. And then to get at how we're treating each other along the way, how we're making the, the differentiation between, you know, when is Matthew 18 the process and when is it asking for something else, something more and asking, asking hard questions about when there's cases of spiritual abuse because that's vague for a lot of people. And then making sure that we're protecting people from other kinds of abuse uh, and, and having a hard and fast rule about how we handle some of those cases. Yeah. Um, and having those, those kinds of conversations as a congregation. And then the bigger picture that we've always, we always have to be asking is, you know, when, we, when we're appointing, ordaining these men, in leadership, we are we are entrusting them with a great weight. And how are we supporting them? How are we, you know, are we diligently praying for them? And are they also doing the work that that's required of them? You know, and again, it's not it's not shame based. It's not you don't deserve to be an elder or uh, you know, we're gonna ask everybody to step down. <laughs> and there are probably people that need to step down and that, that needs to happen too. And there are probably people who don't think they're called to be an elder because of the weight of being an elder and they think it's more than they can handle. In a lot of ways, those are the people we want, right? I mean, we want those people who are humble and who, who know that they're gonna need help. Yeah. Uh, and so we need to be able and willing to put in things to support those men in getting the help that they need to be wise and discerning leaders. I mean, all this feels really heavy, but in a way, it's the work that we're called to do as the bride of Christ. Like this is this is what we're doing when we become a church, when we become a local entity that in all the ways we're conducting ourselves, we're reflecting the grace and goodness of God. Yeah. And so every step of the way, we need to be reflecting the goodness and grace of God, that people can look into our systems and say, that is a gracious way of handling this. Yeah. That was the right thing to do at every step of the way. Because whether we recognize it or not, we are reflecting God. We claim him. So we're reflecting him. We want it to be in good ways. Right.